Welcome to the virtual Ucom Yurt. I'm Rashid Gabdulhakov, and today I'm delighted to co-host the Chat in the Yurt podcast with Kamila Smagulova, who is a research fellow at Paper Lab Public Policy Research Center in Kazakhstan. She's currently based in Poland, working within the Lane Kirkland Scholarship Program. Together, we will keep you company through a monthly chat in the Yurt with a conversation on Europe Central Asia developments. Chat in the Yurt is a podcast of the EU CAM program of the Center for European Security Studies in the Netherlands. And today's podcast is focused on Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, which has been going on for nearly two years now. We will address its impacts on Central Asia. Our Yurt's guest is uh, Dr. Ajan Sharshenova who is a Bishkek-based political analyst and the executive director of Crossroads Central Asia Think Tank, also based in Kyrgyzstan, in Bishkek. Um, I can read Ajan's uh, achievements for several hours, I believe. We are super honored to have her. But I, for the sake of time, I only can highlight a few. Ajan published uh, extensively on Central Asian politics. She focuses on the region's uh, relations with the European Union, Russia, and China. Ajan authored a book on the EU democracy promotion in Central Asia and co-edited a, a book recently on navigating positionality in research, a super important topic, of course. Ajan, great pleasure to welcome you. Hello. Thank you very much, Rashid. Thank you very much, Camila. I'm very much honored to be on this podcast, a very unusual format and very close to the region. Yeah, I was just going to briefly say what we're going to talk about. So we preliminary divided what we want to discuss today to how the war impacted Central Asia as a region. But we also do not focus on the region. We would also look at the region within. So we try to compare, understand that five countries are not homogenous, especially in terms of their relation with Russia, which we would talk about a lot today, since also most of your works are dedicated to soft power of Russia in the region and propaganda. And you've conducted some of those research before, even before the full-scale invasion during pandemic. That's also would be very interesting to discuss. Um, so maybe I would go on with the first question. Uh, Ajan, do you see the movement of Central Asia leaning more towards Russia or towards Ukraine and Western partners? So do you see any sharp differences between Central Asian countries in the way they navigate between those powers around them? Not yet, to be honest. I've been thinking about this quite extensively in the last couple of weeks as I'm preparing a small paper for Foreign Policy Center, and that was exactly the question they had as well. And to be fair, Central Asia definitely is not leaning towards Ukraine, but it is still balancing between Russia and the West. And I think the war in Ukraine has become a new geopolitical reality, and so the business as usual, unfortunately. And I think that's the case was quite a few countries, including the warring parties as well, Russia and Ukraine, because the war has been going on for so long. It feels like it's become a part of normal in a way, which is really sad, but that's re reality. In terms of balancing, I feel that Central Asian countries are probably experiencing slightly less pressure than before, than within the first year, to choose a side or to state conclusively which side they support. And I feel that both Russia and the West acknowledge that Central Asia cannot take a side uh, and they try to work around it. But of course, it's just inevitable that sometimes there are some slips in the speeches of the presidents. Sometimes it's not even presidents, it could be members of the parliament, it could be other public figures. But I think the opinions are still very much mixed. 
So some political figures support Ukraine, some political figures support Russia. But generally, I think the general sort of consensus between the public and the state in Central Asian republics is to stay as neutral, as much neutral as it's possible within the circumstances. Do you believe that this is a genuine desire or is it more of, of a masking? Because, yeah, uh, on the one hand, you cannot really reveal your your true uh, position. But if we look at, for instance, the visits, yeah, uh, state and official visits of Mirziyoyev, for example, uh, president of Uzbekistan in 2023, the majority of trips were to Russia. Yeah, just now Lukashenko came to visit and together they called Putin. And we see that on May 9th, symbolically, all the leaders... Uh, pay a visit to Moscow, of course, on the one hand to uh, celebrate the victory, but of World War in World War II. But on the other hand, of course, we know the symbolic value of what is called the Great Patriotic War and what position Russia uh, takes on in in that war and how it's symbolic for its current uh, aggression against Ukraine. Do you, do you feel like it's a genuine choice for staying neutral, or is it more of a masking of uh, a real strategy? I don't think it's genuine choice. I think it's a necessity and a very mm -hmm. practical one. Generally, Central Asian societies and leadership as well, they tend to be quite practical when it comes to international relations. There aren't too many emotions involved. I don't think that there is any sort of empathy or compassion to the Ukrainians going on. But I think it's more that uh, Russia still remains a major economic partner, a major security partner, a longstanding historical partner in many ways, like whether we like it or not. But on the other hand, Central Asian republics do not want to alienate the rest of the world. Um, and quite a lot of the rest of the world is supporting Ukraine at the moment. So obviously that's a factor. If Ukraine did not enjoy the Western support, I don't think there would be this dilemma. So I think that's only thanks to the Western secondary sanctions, the possibility of secondary sanctions mm -hmm. or the general sort of quite vocal support of Ukraine in the West that Central Asian countries are still balancing or engaging in this balancing act. If there was no this factor, I think it would be just an equivocal support of Russia, unfortunately. Do you see significant differences in the way how these ties are perceived on the level of elites and on the by elites, I mean political elites, right? Because most of them are so, as you already mentioned, interconnected with Russian elites, even I would now remember the private visit of Nursultan Zarbayev, Kazakhstan's former president, uh, to Russia in his, as media portrayed, private meeting with Vladimir Putin uh, by the end of 2023. Uh, do you see the substantial difference in the way how it is for political elites and how it is for public? Because it appears that on the level of civil society and on wider public in countries, there might be different dynamics. What do you think about that? That's for sure. And I think one of the reasons is probably personal relations and the face time or the amount of FaceTime hours that our leaders have had with the current Russian leadership, but also with the previous Russian leadership. They're simply more exposed to Russian politics and Russian personalities. They're more exposed to the information area. Um, we have had way more visits of Western officials in the last couple of years than in the last five years or so. And that's also an indication that the West is trying to catch up and increase its presence. Not at a very high level, but at least like there are more visits now than before. But I think it's a little bit too late now. Because mm -hmm. when you have an option of face-to-face -face time with the president of a country, and then you have some sort of uh, mid-level ranking 
officials coming to visit. That's two different levels and two different leagues. So in a way, I think it's all coming back to how much time Central Asian republics have actually spent, or Central Asian leaderships have actually spent with different leaders from around the world. At the public level, I think it's a similar situation in a way because um, everything goes back into history, into socialization, into the languages that we're surrounded with. So obviously, an average Central Asian person, when they're growing up, they probably have access to the entertainment, the information, the education, the news um, in the local languages, but then maybe second language would be Russian or even first language would be Russian. And that's how you build your worldview. That's how you build your preferences when it comes to world politics because you don't have any other anchors when you're an average person who does not engage in high-level international politics. And I think this is something that politicians do not always understand uh, in the West uh, when they're trying to create sort of top-down relationships with the communities and the governments of Central Asia without fully understanding how deeply rooted are the Central Asian-Russian relations. Mm -hmm. And they're very much mixed and they're very much love and hate relationships. But they go back two, three hundred years. And that is something that simply cannot compete with the last 30 years of very limited engagement with the Western countries. How can we then navigate now? Uh, maybe we can unpack this point a bit further because we see a decline in uh, well in freedoms yeah, freedom of uh, expression uh, in Kyrgyzstan for instance uh, a country that was deemed as kind of one of the more uh, free let's say in in the region uh, in comparison of course to the neighbors and now there is quite a bit of pressure put on civil society arrests of journalists unprecedented uh, uh, crackdown on uh, freedom of speech on journalism on uh, critical voices and of course, on the one hand, we see more interest from Western partners in Central Asia, but on the other hand, we also see this decline. Uh, how can we explain that? That's a good question. And I think it's not only Western partners. Uh, for example, Turkey is often declaring its foreign policy priorities. And it seems that at the emotional or emotive level, Central Asia seems to be sort of a priority in terms of uh, international relations for Turkey. But then if you look deeper, Turkey does not seem to have developed an internal expert capacity, for mm -hmm. example. They don't have too many experts working specifically on Central Asia or coming here to do field work. And it's quite amusing, like given the amount of the rhetoric that the current government gives, the importance that it mm -hmm. sort of assigns to Central Asia and then this mismatch with the uh, rhetoric and the actions. And I think that's the same with the Western approach. They simply don't have the sufficient bandwidth to engage with the region efficiently. And unfortunately, so far in the last 30 years or so in the years of the independence, a lot of Western partners would usually react to what's happened not even in the region, but somewhere near. Be it the collapse of the Soviet Union and the initial engagement with the countries, or the rise of China and the perceived or actual perils of the China's might to the West. Then it was Afghanistan, now it's Ukraine. So it's always somebody else around us that's important. And by an extension, we become more important than, than before. But I don't think that approach would work in the long term. 
because it's so obvious. I mean, like, I'm not a huge expert. I'm not, like, 100% involved in this, but it's so clear to me, and I'm sure it's clear to any average Joe from any Central Asian Republic that the Western countries come here when something happens around us, not when when they are interested in us or what's happening in the region. And regarding Absolutely. the freedoms as well, yeah, <laughs> the freedoms in Kyrgyzstan are gone all right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think... That's also a part of the authoritarian autocratic learning or autocratic diffusion that's happening in the Eurasian region. The I wouldn't say it's like a backlash of authoritarianism, but certainly the Central Asian regimes and the Russian authoritarian regime, they learn from each other. And they're quite efficient in this exchange of know-how. Obviously, they don't do conferences on how to oppress better. <laughs> and they don't run trainings on how to <laughs> shut up your opponents. But they definitely seem to be learning because quite a lot of things seem to be copy-pasted, repeated, uh, sort of moved uh, from one country to another, moved and improved. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the region as well. It always goes beyond the region as well. But there seems to be that authoritarianism in Central Asia is getting smarter, more agile, more discreet, and much more sustainable than before. You've mentioned that um, there are there should be some other ways of engaging with the region efficiently from from the side of actors, the bigger actors like the EU or the US, right? At the same time, we also see that Central Asia is out there on the spotlight in the times of crisis. But do you see that Central Asia as a region or maybe countries separately can take benefits from that? What, what are the ways how Central Asian countries can turn it to their own benefits by being on the spotlight during the crisis time? How can they make it for their own, uh, I don't know, for their own future benefits of being seen as this region, not usually subjectively assessed without those issues. To be fair, I wouldn't worry about Central Asian regimes because they're quite resourceful and same goes to Central Asian people. Like you give very little attention or very little resources and they usually go a long way. And I think uh, they have been using the situation in Ukraine, in Afghanistan, in any other spot that's near us, to their own benefit. So I think Central Asian countries do manage to make the most of the geopolitical situation around them, of the attention they get. And even the fact that the EU sort of recently declared commitment to uh, invest more than ever before. Uh, the World Bank, I think, committed something as well. Uh, Russia certainly continues, like even in the war economy, continues giving something. So... I think Central Asian countries are doing well in this regard. They have learned to survive. They have learned to go to get by with little means. They have learned to milk all possible partners. So in a way, they are quite resilient in this regard. So I think whatever happens, they will still make the most of it. The Can problem we, is yeah, how much of this will trickle back to the population. Yes, that's, what, that's, what I, that's exactly, <laughs> exactly what I wanted to ask. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it seems like it's only feeding the longevity and stability of the regimes, because the regimes are in, in quite a convenient uh, position. On the one hand, the EU will be reluctant to criticize too much, so as not to scare them away into uh, taking the neutrality mask off and fully embracing Russia. On the other hand, yeah, this balance allows them to then only benefit and collect fruit from both sides while uh, feeding the uh, regime itself. And what is the benefit of actual people on the ground is, of course, quite um, questionable. But definitely. we also... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. And I think that is why the regimes have become much more sustainable. 
because they have learned to play all the actors to their own benefit in the long term. And there are precedents as well, because uh, the European Union, the US and other Western partners keep talking about human rights, rule of law and so on and so forth. But then they continue cooperating with Turkmenistan without much change. Like Turkmenistan Absolutely. has been cons consolidating its regime for the past 32 years. Like It's never gotten any better. It was always going worse and worse and worse, but it didn't change the engagement of Western countries in the country. So of that's course, the argument really is that, example. hey, at least we have a foot in the door, because if we are too it, critical, we are not going to be there as well. But of course, you know, does that foot in the door mean anything? And whose foot... In, is in there and, and who, who benefits from that access and is it even justified at the end of the day to to spend uh, the money and uh, diplomatic efforts into doing something if there is no result absolutely but recently we also hear quite a few bold statements especially in the west i don't know if they echo in central asia that central asian states have uh, moved away from russia that they have parted ways you know and they clearly uh, showed their position could you comment on maybe something that lies beneath i think the iceberg tip yeah the linguistic and cultural aspects that you've already mentioned that are much more uh, present and of course for for much longer times with Russia but could you maybe comment on some concrete uh, elements such as the Russian language maybe education uh, labor media this is a good one because yeah that might seem like this especially when you look from afar and you compare data that is now and data that comes from like 20 30 years ago certainly there was a big difference but if you live in the region continuously, you probably see that it's a natural process. And in a way, I think whether there was war in Ukraine or there wasn't war in Ukraine, I think that would still happen. And I think that is a natural process of separation from Russia that started in 1991 and hasn't finished yet because obviously signing those declarations didn't do much uh, to the public perceptions, to the way of thinking to even organization and even toponymy of the countries, like the names within the cities and the streets and so on and so forth. So it takes time to separate from someone or something that you have been attached to for so long that has been relentlessly uh, sort of erasing your identity and replacing it with something else. So it's quite difficult to come back from that. And in a way, I see an analog with a relationship, like when you separate from an abusive partner or abusive parent, it takes a lot of time to differentiate between them and yourself and to start building your own identity that is not tied up to that person who was very important to you. And I think that is what's happening in the last 30 years. I think it's a natural process. It simply is happening now. And the Russian-speaking generations are getting older, are getting out of able-bodied working people, social groups. Uh, younger people are replacing those groups of people. Younger people whose first language is a local Central Asian language. And they might or might not speak Russian language. And that certainly affects the market as well because you have consumers with different linguistic preferences. And you start producing something that is available and accessible to younger generations. So I feel that is uh, an absolutely normal process. I don't see why Russia should get grumpy about that. I think that's a legitimate process of what's happened or follow up of what's happened 32 and a half years ago.
At the same time, whenever some uh, decolonial processes have happened, and you mentioned them as separation from the former, let's say, ally or abusive power, um, I observe that Russian media is quite hands-on uh, trying to react, right? And they often use very old Soviet rhetoric of labeling uh, movements like that to be nationalist. And the way how this term national or nationalist has become very offensive and very, I would say, like it, it's become a tool for discrimination, right? So when people try to reclaim whatever is theirs, so we see that from Russian side, there is always the reaction of, even if we see that there is legitimately no reason for them to be grumpy, at the same time, this imperial innocence is shackling like considerably when we see that. I would just maybe uh, come back to one of the surveys that you have done, uh, which was called Forecasting Central Asia. Uh, and as far as I remember, you conducted that even before pandemic. And if I'm not mistaken, you conducted the second round. So the survey was about um, the foreign policy, the future of foreign policy trajectories of the region. And especially there was also a focus of Russia. How do they envision it? Do they see as partner? Uh, do they see more opportunities for cooperation? Would, could you maybe describe that shortly? Because you also mentioned Turkey, right? That there is still kind of involvement of the Turkey at the same time, not much effort, especially from researchers, right? Not being involved with the region. Uh, so what are those, like how things have changed uh, since full-scale invasion after two years of how experts in the region assess the priorities of Central Asia across the time? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your question. So Central Asia Forecasting, I wasn't the only author. I was one of the editors. Uh, I worked with Dr. Aliyat Hai and Dr. Shevbek Jalaev and Dr. Sebastian Sheik. So it was a big team and we had uh, we have um, we have done a survey of experts. So it's not public opinions. It's more like expert opinions. And again, like not all experts agree to take a survey. So it's only people who agree to take a survey whose opinions we were able to analyze. But in terms of international politics, there was actually an interesting shift from 2021, a very slight one. And I think that's what we need to bear in mind. And mm -hmm. that is why I'm not a big fan of this big sort of tanky takes like sensationalists and it changed a lot. It like Russia is no longer a friend to some Asia, that sort of stuff. Because it's very subtle changes, but they set the trends. And that's why it's sort of forecasting what might happen in the next three to five years, how things might change. So two years ago, when asked who would Central Asia's external partners would be from a set of countries, people or the experts said that it was mostly Russia. So mm -hmm. the first two lines were always Russia and China. And they're still there. So if you look at the top two partners, they're still Russia and China, but they swapped for a lot of countries. So for Kazakhstan, for Turkmenistan, and for Uzbekistan, China is now the top priority external partner, not Russia. For Kyrgyzstan, it's still Russia. And for Tajikistan, it's split 50-50. So it was a tie between China and Russia. So it's a very subtle change that there were two leaders in that leaderboard, but they swapped the places. And another change which we observed, because usually it would go, I think, in 2021, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the top three, so not top two, but top three, would be Russia, China, and then the EU or the US, mm. the top three. Nowadays, the third line 
it's only Kazakhstan that still thinks that the EU and the EU member states are sort of third-tier partners for them. For everybody else, it's Turkey run, mm -hmm. which is quite incredible. So I think that is a very subtle shift. Because Turkey run, they moved from the fourth and fifth positions uh, from two years ago. So these are small shifts in the perceptions of the experts, but they also indicate that maybe Russia's influence is slightly decreasing. Maybe China's influence is slightly increasing. The EU's influence is definitely decreasing. Like it's mm -hmm. gone from the first and second and third year, absolutely like. And Turkey and Iran are going up. And mm -hmm. potentially, because of the border conflicts that we had in the region, potentially because of the military uh, cooperation that's growing with Iran and Turkey, and also potentially because of the ethno-nationalist rhetoric that is taking place in the countries, all the five countries of Central Asia, which is uh, not a great story, to be honest. I'd love to have Turkey and Iran on the top there, but for other reasons, but that's what, what it seems to be at the moment. Well, absolutely fascinating, and I think it's a good uh, opportunity to transition then towards uh, focusing on, on the EU, is the EU the sort of, the, how do you evaluate then the EU's uh, role? Is it doomed to be this sort of partner with a number of awkward approaches that don't work? I will explain what I mean here, yeah? because on the one hand, you want to stand up for uh, democratic values as a European Union. On the other hand, you cannot demand too much because you want that above mentioned foot in the door. Uh, yet further, then you compromise for uh, something that is more related to energy, connectivity rather than human rights. But evidently, there are more preferential partners close by rather than the EU for Central Asian states. How, how could you then, Ajan, uh, evaluate the uh, EU's role, ambitions, and opportunities in engaging with Central Asia? I think the European Union understands very well its limitations uh, in terms of engagement with the region. It also understands the limitations of promoting some values or non-material things like democracy and rule of law. So I think, and that is reflected reflected in the 2019 uh, strategy because it's now focusing more on connectivity, as you said, and environment rather than like on human rights and rule of law and democracy and so on and so forth. I think the EU will continue having the food in the door. As they have shown with Turkmenistan, whatever happens, they still prefer to have something uh, I think the motto is it's better than nothing. And I'm afraid that would be <laughs> the motto for, for the mm -hmm. years to come. But compared to the other foreign policy actors, the European Union is probably the one that is actually putting quite a lot of structured thought into its approaches to Central Asia. Because if you look at Russia, Russia doesn't have a separate Central Asia strategy. If you look at the foreign policy concepts uh, from 2019, Russia is only mentioned as a member, as part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. In 2023, I think it's mentioned twice, and that's mm -hmm. pretty much it, just in the foreign policy. Meanwhile, Africa and Latin America are mentioned way more often, which is quite interesting because they're so far, and they're not as close, like in literal and illiteral <laughs> terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's quite curious. China, I'm not too sure, but I think for China, we are more of a sort of territory to build the infrastructure through and maybe engage sometimes economically, but not necessarily politically. 
Um, the U.S. does not seem to have a separate strategy for Central Asia, if I'm not mistaken. They probably have a global strategy where Central Asia is probably listed alongside Middle East and something else, South Asia. Um, most likely. Yeah, most likely. Could be, could be part of Middle East, could be part, part of Eastern Europe. Yeah, you never know. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's like when uh, Central Asia was a part of Central Command when it came to the U.S. sort of military districts and I think U.S. DOD had one designation, the U.S. State Department had a different designation, and Education Department had like a different one. So I think they, it, took, it took them a while to get over this confusion and sort of start working more, uh, you know, consistently, <laughs> or mm -hmm. at least like build some sort of consistent perception of what Central Asia be, is. But the European Union seems to be the only one that's going through not one, but two, if not three, if you take into account TASIS, uh, Central Asia strategies, which is quite remarkable. But then it's again the thing that you mentioned before, it's the gap between the rhetoric and the actions. So on paper and normative documents, it looks amazing. Like the amount of paperwork created by the European Parliament, European Commission, European External Action Service, with regards to Central Asia is remarkable. And that's why it's easy to research EU Central Asian relations because a lot is written. There are a lot of primary normative and policy documents covering that. But if you want to see the actual output, it's so limited compared to other countries, even the same US. Yeah. And I yeah. think that is partially because the EU is a so-called sui generis or generis actor so it's it's so unique because it's not uh, a unitary state it's not a federal state it's not exactly a union of states it's mm -hmm. it's an organization of its own and it has just too many actors involved who probably just tear apart all the attention of the european union and drag it away in different directions and it's quite different difficult for them to sort of focus on something for extended periods of time so consistently of course, our chat in the Europe is designed to bridge uh, European Union and Central Asia. So I hope that uh, EU delegation representatives and, uh, and policymakers are listening to us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, please, please take note. To be fair, the delegation, because I did my, it might be outdated because I did it 10 years ago, but I interviewed like the whole line of command, <laughs> starting with mm -hmm. Brussels and finishing with like Astana and Bishkek. And the further they go away from Central Asia, the less informed they are, the less aware they are of the limitations on the ground of what should be done. I understand like at every single level, there are more and more difficulties and factors at play. And it just gets like more and more difficult to do something in the region, something meaningful, something visible, considerable. So I understand why. And in a way, authoritarian countries have advantage in this. Because if Putin says we're friends with Central Asia now, the whole Russia will turn to Central Asia. We're friends. And that's mm -hmm. it. Like overnight. Probably if the European no Union. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if the European Union leadership says somebody else comes to more and they turn attention to something else, and then they might say something at the Commission, but the Parliament disagrees, the European External Action disagrees, the member state disagree, the money wouldn't come. So it's just too complex for an organization or an actor like the EU to have some sort of consistent and decisive position on anything really. It's much easier for countries like China and Russia 
to engage with countries because they can do this easily and there is no problem with accountability to taxpayers for the money they spend or all sorts of auditing on how well this money is spent and whether it's politically correct or not, whether it's meeting like gender mainstreaming issues or not. So it's just easier for authoritarian countries to have a decisive foreign policy. Can I ask one clarifying question? At the very beginning, you mentioned that politicians in the West over those years have developed very toned-down relations. Did you uh, specifically relate, would you relate that to the civil society or to the governments? So when we mean that um, like Western politicians and EU or the US or like the, the superpowers like that, they've developed top-down relations. How can we understand that? Could you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? They usually work with the governments, which is understandable because they don't know us too well. They don't know whom to talk to when they come to Central Asia. And I used to be a translator and fixer, and that was a repetitive pattern. Whatever Western foreign actor would come to Kyrgyzstan, for example, they would go top-down. They would start preferably with the president's administration, then go to the sort of profile ministries they need to work with, like Ministry of Economic Development, for example, or Agriculture. They will try to identify civil society sector as well, but under the gatekeepers when it comes to that. Maybe less so in Kyrgyzstan, but there is still this past dependence. And that's why there is a complaint that it's the same NGOs that receive the crown, support, are visible, uh, can be heard and the newer or smaller or less conventional, less Western NGOs are sort of cut out and they're not heard or they don't have access to uh, Western politicians when they come to the country. So it's an issue which could be resolved if you had an internal expertise, like long-standing internal expertise in the European Union, for example. Not necessarily academic, but definitely some sort of continuous knowledge because the way the European External Action Service is also built, they come and go, they come and go. They don't build like a long-standing expertise. And when I worked in the Middle East and I met um, the, deep, the Russian diplomats, almost all of them spoke Arabic. Almost all of them did regional studies at Ngimo. And they spent their entire careers around the Arabic-speaking languages. So they knew the culture, they knew the customs. They knew the lineages, they understood political Islam very well. So for them, it was easier to navigate this than for a European diplomat, for example, who probably learned a European language or Russian language, and all of a sudden they work in the Middle East and they have to adapt quickly. And they only have two, three years to learn the ways. And by the time you sort of start understanding how everything works, you're shifted to a different location. So I think this is the problem. Again, not just for the European Union, yeah. the U.S. has been cutting down its academic Absolutely. facilities for a while with area studies. And I think with the war in Ukraine, there was a big outcry across um, the U.S. academia complaining about that. Mm -hmm. Same is happening in the British academia, same is happening in the European continental academia. Absolutely. I can yeah, confirm so that. I think yeah, if, just, if we look at how many Central Asian studies there there are uh, across the European Union, yeah, we can just be sitting here in tears because uh, it, it's it, it's so uh, marginal, and when it does happen, it's usually attached again, yeah, into somebody's quote unquote backyard. Yeah, we were either part of the Greater Eurasia or well, part of great. Russian studies, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, or anthropology, absolutely. and. And it's fine, but even when it comes to decision-making, they're not always engaged, like whatever expertise you have. Like 
I haven't, I only met people in the UK um, who are area experts with whom the FCDO does consult or they do mm -hmm. like some sort of trainings for the outgoing ambassadors mm -hmm. and deputy heads of missions. But in Europe, I've never heard, I've never met a single expert from Germany or Netherlands who works on Central Asia who has been directly invited to work with the diplomats who are going there or to work with the policymakers who are shaping the policies. And yeah. this is such a missed opportunity, really. This summer, I have to say that this summer we were, uh, we had the opportunity to work with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands with uh, Jos Bonstra and some of the fellows of Europe Central Asia monitoring. Good. And yeah, yeah, one of the rare cases when we can come in direct contact with with diplomats and talk about Central Asia and enjoy each other. Yeah, but this of course needs to be systematic, not just something that happens out of the blue, <laughs> just suddenly because there is war against Ukraine, but something that needs to be systematic because Central Asia in itself matters. Ajahn, for the sake of time, we have to approach the landing. Fascinating insights, but I have to ask you, in a few lines, could you tell our listeners what is Crossroads Central Asia? What should we know about this think tank? Uh, it's an independent, uh, not-for-profit think tank. We're based in Bishkek, Central Asia, we're in Kyrgyzstan. We cover both the region and the world, and we're very small, but we're very much focused. So it's tailored research, basically. And it's Dr. Sherbek Jurais, sort of a child. Uh, mm -hmm. He created it in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. I only joined it last year. But I've always followed his work, and I really liked that he had very policy-oriented work. And that's what we want to do as well, because we are all academics. Of course. And we understand how tedious academic work can be and how little readership we get when we actually publish stuff. So we wanted to have an outlet for something more practical, shorter, precise, actionable. Something that could be read in Washington, in Brussels, in Moscow, in Beijing, understood in just two pages and maybe taken into consideration. And we try to produce something fresh as well, something recent and something consistent. So this is what a think tank is. <laughs> so your, your uh, readers are policymakers? Well, we hope so, yeah. We try to mm -hmm. reach out and we try to publish and, and to bring it to the attention of policymakers. Fantastic. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Great. And I'm glad you mentioned Shairbek uh, Jurayev, uh, of course, and both him and his brother Emil, of course, fantastic scholars. And maybe it's also a good point to mention that there, you know, there is now a significant amount of uh, excellent scholars in Central Asia with uh, fantastic world-level education who are super capable, who should receive a voice in, of course, producing knowledge about Central Asia. And maybe now pushing all boundaries, I can squeeze in just one more question about positionality, because we, I just can't afford to ignore this, having, having you uh, uh, with us on the stream, Ajahn. A few words on this book on positionality and maybe some take-home points. Oh, the book actually came out of uh, our coffee with Jasmine Dalaniola because she came to Bishkek to do her field work. And we just sat informally for a cup of coffee and we were exchanging our experiences of field work in Central Asia and we re realized it can be quite different. It's usually frustrating, it can be quite difficult, but it's different when you come from Europe and when you come from the region. And we started amusing about that and we managed to recruit an amazing set of authors we were able and very generous, but like, you know, again, it's voluntary work, like nobody gets ever paid for that stuff. But they really, 
opened their souls and they discussed uh, their personal experiences of being a single mother, for example, and combining it with research, or being a black person in a society that is not very used to black people, or being a homosexual person and trying to collect data without harming yourself or harming your respondents. So it's a lot of uncomfortable issues, actually, that we uncover. It's a lot of difficult topics that we discuss, but I think it's important to talk more about it. I'm not saying that we are the first ones to talk about it. There are plenty more excellent publications, but I think we need to engage. And I think every researcher at some point in their life, they start questioning, who am I? And how does this affect what I do and how I see the world and how I communicate with my readers? Thank you very much, Ajahn. Rashid, should be wrapping up? Should we be wrapping up here? I think it's an excellent point to stop on. Uh, a reminder to our listeners that you can find us across uh, platforms. Please feel free to uh, send your questions, uh, suggest speakers, nominate yourself as a guest in our chat in the yurt, follow us on SoundCloud and elsewhere. Ajahn, thank you so much for your time and this fascinating chat in the yurt. Camila, incredible experience of co-hosting this discussion with you. Thank you very much, Ajahn, for finding the time. We will also leave uh, the contacts and the profile of uh, your think tank, which we believe that... Cross there's... Central Asia. Yes. Thank you very <laughs> much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.